And in closing, I held up the you know the liquor license. That was exhibit one in the evidence. And closing, had my fingers you know behind my back with my fingers crossed and told them you know they want to accept the privileges of this of this ability to serve alcohol, but they don't want the responsibility, right? Um, that's your you know, that's your job, Jerry, is to make make them responsible and uncross those fingers. And I think it it obviously worked. You're listening to Best Practices with Kenny Berger. On this podcast, we talk with the country's top trial lawyers about their approaches to every aspect of practice, from case selection to closing argument. Hello, and welcome to Best Practices with Kenny Berger. Our guest today is Chicago trial lawyer and my good friend, Nicholas Cronauer. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, Kenny. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you. You too, buddy. You know, this is usually where we ask, like, tell us about this and tell us about that. But the best approach for today, I think, is is kind of just to jump right in. You just got a big verdict recently, a very hard-earned verdict on a tram shop case. I, I did. Yeah, thank you. And it's kind of funny in hindsight. I think when you kind of leave, obviously, everything on the field and you look back at the result we got, I think it was really good. And part of me is like, man, maybe we're a little crazy for, for pushing as hard as we did, but it worked out. And you know, I got a lot of people to thank and being a trial lawyer, you kind of build on a lot of other people's successes. And no doubt this one was a result of that. Tell us kind of the, the background of the case. What, what's the, what are the facts, the, the one to two minute version, just background wise? The so background, you know, this case in Illinois, Illinois has got terrible dram, dram shop law. It's a great place to practice, but there's a few bad, bad laws and this is one. So generally there's a cap on damages. And basically, the, you know, the short story is guys are at a bar. They get overserved, both pass away. Um, so, you know, as soon as we got the case, there's a whole backstory on, on, on that. The goal is how do we maximize the recovery? Because when, when someone dies, obviously the dram shop limits Illinois, I'm embarrassed to say this. I don't, I don't even know what they are. They're low. Um, I never focused on that, so I didn't care. You know, low, low 150,000, maybe tops. I think um, at the time it was maybe even 85,000. So the goal is always how do you, you know, what's the escape hatch? Um, in this case, we had some some good facts that we were able to allege a negligence count, which is you know independent of the dram, able to get that by motion dismiss summary judgment and got it to the jury, and the jury found negligence along with the dram shot violation, and then gave damages of four million dollars, which was reduced. But it was it was reduced to what two point five? Is that what I saw? Two point five after the decedent's fault because he he was thirty nine percent at fault. Got it. So that part I did know, or I did know that there. So finding a comparative. And I think I did know that there was also a place called DeKalb County involved. But other than watching like some crime shows and WGN as a kid, I couldn't really tell you anything else about DeKalb County. Yep. So it's about an hour outside Chicago. It's more of a rural, quasi-conservative, quasi-not. I don't know. It's changing with a lot of things. But um, there's a record verdict for this county. In this county, other people told me if you get 500,000, you're, you know, it's a good day. Um, but as you know, loss of life is worth way more than 500,000. I'm glad the jury agreed. Yeah. And, and everybody, you know, no matter, I think your, your political leanings, your background, I think most people, not everybody, most people understand and value life. Um, if not other people, certainly their own. Agreed that, you know, the problem is too many lawyers value life with how, you know, what's your earning potential. You know, that was one of the hurdle we had in this case is he really didn't have, he's 25 years old. His earning background was working for a bartender, probably never made more than $15,000. You know, so you, you take that over the, the rest of someone's life, which is how most lawyers value cases. I mean, the number's not that big. 
Yeah. So help me understand what's the difference between a negligence claim and a dram shop claim in Illinois? So basically the dram claim revolves solely around the over-service of alcohol. So, you know, if someone gets drunk at a bar and causes harm, the bar in Illinois is liable for the over-service and it's capped at, you know, it depends if it's an injury or a death. Um, limits go up every year. So that is good. You know, they're still not high enough. I think back when this case was filed, the limits were 85,000. Like I said, now they're in, in, into the low 100s, but basically if alcohol is served irresponsibly, there's limits. Nick, just to jump in, do y'all have first party and third party dram shop? In other words, like let's say in South Carolina, for example, if someone goes to a bar and gets drunk and goes off the road and dies due to their intoxication, unless they're a minor, you can't bring that case. But if that drunk driver crosses the center line, hits somebody and enters a third party, the third party arguably has a dram shop case. So good question. We actually just had this case and I learned this. We actually got a good result, um, luckily. But apparently, so I think to answer your question, I don't, you know, they don't really classify it as, as that, but if the drunk driver passes away, the drunk driver can't sue the bar. Right. So in Noel's case, did you have, you didn't have the driver, you had Correct. a passenger or you had somebody else? Chaz was the passenger in the car. So yeah. Those are hard cases. For sure. And You're like, we, no shit, I just tried it. <laughs> and it's one of those things, again, hindsight is like, man, you know, we turned down basically 650 the night before trial. I'm glad I did. But again, talking to more lawyers and go through the facts, a lot of people look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah, we got a passenger to point three hundred one BAC. He worked at the bar. Um, the driver worked at the bar. They went working the night of the crash. You know, testimony, um, which is a whole other backstory from a key witness that the sheriff had to bring in, testifying that she was begging with him not to get in the car with Sam. He did, and obviously they had a single vehicle crash and both perished. So Sam was the driver, and he died. Yep, correct. Your client's name is Chaz. Chaz. Yep. And Chaz also does. So, so take us back to that distinction between dram shop and, and negligence. What did the bar negligently do or not do apart from the overservice? In our case, we were able to allege a voluntary undertaking amongst other negligence claims. So basically, if you can allege some type of negligence unrelated to alcohol, in this case, it was the fact we had evidence that the shot girl attempted to follow Sam and Chaz home to make sure they would get home safely. She was initially supposed to drive Chaz home, but they decided at 3.40 in the morning that, you know, after pleading with Chaz, that Chaz was going to um, ride with Sam. She made the decision to follow them home, make sure they got home safely. And obviously that um, failed. So basically we are, that was negligence. But how, how is that? I mean, this result is becoming more and more astounding the more we talk about this. <laughs> and I'm not trying to play devil's advocate. I'm trying to get I'm trying to become a better lawyer here. How how is it negligence on the part of the bar for one of their employees to try to follow them home and wasn't following them home outside the course and scope of that woman's work? Correct. So she worked there. She they denied she was an employee. We, we argue it doesn't matter. She was an agent. So there's a little bit more of the story. They showed up at 145. The bar was supposed to close at two. So they were all there. And there's a video of Sammy actually working, quote unquote, you can't see my air quotes, working um, on surveillance footage, you know, to shut down the bar. 
And around, again, 3.45, they leave. It's, it's obvious there. It's basically turned into an after party. Um, so 3.45, you know, after they're finally closing down the bar, you know, another allegation we made is basically here's these individuals, one of which was literally laying in the door threshold um, 11 minutes before he drives Chaz home, literally laying in the door threshold for seven minutes. You've got um, the shot girl stepping over him, you get the bar manager stepping over him. So, you know, one of the other negligence allegations is there's there's some case out there. It's basically like if you force someone to leave, that, that is independent of the alcohol service. You're basically forced them into a bad situation. So that's kind of the negligence too. And then the, the voluntary undertaking comes in, um, at least in Illinois, because, you know, we argued she assumed a duty to get them home safe. She could have called 911. You could have, I mean, not, and obviously the, the evidence was 911 is the last case scenario, but you've got Uber, you've got Lyft. She's Facebook messaging the mom afterwards. I mean, there's, there's other options available and the option to follow a drunk driver home was clearly you know, a breach of their undertaking to get them home safely. One, one fact I really like here is that they continued serving alcohol at the bar as employees of the bar, even though the bar is closed. I mean, yeah. clearly they're still acting as employees beyond closing time and continuing to serve uh, in furtherance of the, the bar's business past 2 a.m., presumably to both Chaz and Sammy. Correct. And we hammered them on that. Um, but, you know, that, that was also kind of a double-edged sword because Chaz was, you know, there was a dispute. Was he an assistant manager or a manager? He started the trial as assistant manager. By the end, you know, defense made him the manager, the head honcho. So you know, all these rules that we were talking about, you know, always kind of came back to bite us because at the end of the day, Chaz knew the rules. You know, he wasn't some bar patron who hasn't worked in a bar. I mean, Chaz was, was at least an assistant manager um, and had, you know, bar experience. But the argument the whole time is, and that I think sold as far as liability is, you know, these bars, when they get their liquor license, it's a promise to follow the responsible distribution of alcohol. Because if you don't follow this responsible distribution of alcohol, bad things happen. We know bad things happen. And this is a way to make sure bad things don't happen. So, um, you know, I went into trial and accepted responsibility for Chaz. You know, I didn't try to play up Chaz was drunk. He didn't know what he was doing. He's too intoxicated. I said, Chaz is at fault. But I said, you know what? Other people are at fault. And that's your, your responsibility to hold the other people accountable that are refusing to be held accountable like we are. That helps rather than try to fight, fight with the defense on, on, you know, Chaz shouldn't be, be at fault. Yeah. And Nick, let me ask you this. Going back to the driver, tell me his name again. Sam. Sam. I apologize. All right. So Sam or, or Sammy. You know, he starts the trial as the assistant manager. By the end, the defense has painted him as as a manager. Was was the tactic there or the strategy for them there to basically put as much culpability on Sam or Sammy as possible, thus removing responsibility for themselves? Or are they not arguing themselves into kind of a separate course and scope argument? Yes. You know, it- you know, there's some of the things the fence did. Um, I'm so scratching my head. And, you know, I think the large part is you're right. It's just to try to pass blame. You know, the more you can blame, blame the dead people, the, the better for them. Right. And again, we were hammering them on, on, on what is a reasonable bar supposed to do. We had good ordinances. We had their employee manual. We had common sense. And I think we just kept beating them with that. You know, they were kind of trying to say, well, you know, if it applies to us, it applies to Sam. And we had, we had lots of sidebars on that because at the end of the day, these rules regulate the bars. They don't regulate, regulate the patrons, right? 
but you know, there's, there's what the law says and there's what a jury does. And those things don't hurt necessarily the same. Did y'all have an alcohol service expert? We did. She was awesome out of Florida. Liz Trendowski. Liz Trendowski. Liz wouldn't mind if I imitated her voice right here on the podcast. Trendowski. <laughs> That's really good. That's close. Uh, Nick, 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 thank you. Yeah. She's, she's, she's retired. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had to look other places than Liz. Which is too bad. I mean, she's too young to be retired. You know, I think you're right. I've got a really funny Liz Trendowski story. Just real quick. We're in deposition. Defense lawyers trying to beat her up. Liz is, is holding her own just fine. We go on a break. And when we go on the break, we were doing it by video. And Liz didn't realize that uh, her audio wasn't muted. And we hear Liz Trendowski and, and her perfect Liz Trendowski voice say, whoa, she's a catty one, isn't she? It's <laughs> awesome. So pretty good. All right. So, so Liz was your expert. She was great. I thought it came across well. You know, really, and there's a whole other side story. I mean, she was in a hotel in Sycamore, Illinois, for what, two days, um, waiting to go on. Her and I, here he was Dr. Millsoff. He was our forensic toxicologist. I've heard the name. Um, he did, did a good job, but yeah, she, did, she did well, and she cleaned up, cleaned up nice. She went on. We kind of actually got, got hacked a little bit from the bar manager, and she went on, I think, right after her and did a really good job kind of making the bar manager look like she – was obviously out for herself. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought when, when you said, look, we tried to, to kind of boil the case down, the simple thing that we kept hammering on, hammering them on was, you know, when, when you, when you said it that way, you know, look, to get the alcohol license, here's what you're going to do. And if you don't do those things, bad stuff happens. I mean, just boiling it down to, to its absolute core is super powerful. What, you know, what, what was your process in terms of kind of reaching the, the absolute core truths or core facts of your case? You know, at the end of the day, I spoke to a lot of other attorneys that have tried a lot more dram cases. And as much as I'd like to say, I came up with it myself, just talking to other you know, great lawyers, talked to them what they did, how they did it. They've gotten good dram verdicts. So, I mean, you know, when alcohol is involved, it is tough. It is easy to blame the victim easy to basically say, well, they got what, what was deserved and just talking to other people kind of said, here, here's how what's worked for me. And I kind of took it and ran with it. And in closing, I held up the, you know, the liquor license that was exhibit one in the evidence and closing had my fingers, you know, behind my back with my fingers crossed and told them, you know, they want to accept the privileges of this, of this ability to serve alcohol, but they don't want the responsibility. Right. Um, that's your, you know, that's your job jury is to make, make them responsible and uncross those fingers and think it, it obviously worked. Absolutely. Let's talk about damages, Nick. In Illinois, wrongful death damages, does it go towards statutory beneficiaries, be it spouse, kids, parents, in the absence of spouse or kids? Yep. So you're exactly right. So there's wrongful death, which generally does not follow um, the probate act, right? So in wrongful death in Illinois, the generally, unless there's a family agreement, the judge is going to make a dependency determination. In this case, we had a 25-year-old with no spouse, no children, no dependents. So then basically it went back to an earlier d- dependency finding by the judge um, between the, the parents. And my, our client, unfortunately, had no relationship with his father, um, only his mother. So, you know, it flows to the estate and it's going to flow 99% to her um, ultimately after a finding by the judge. So, so mom is client and I take it mom testifies. Yep, she did. 
what are the main points, the memorable pieces of mom's testimony, be it on direct or cross? You know, I mean, at the end of the day, you've, you've got a, a deserving mother, you know, obviously been through, been through a lot, you know, and I, something about me, you might not know, maybe I had an unfair advantage is I, I lost a four-year-old um, son three years ago. So, I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, I, I know what it's like. I know what, what, how that feels and what it's like. And I you know, went through a lot of pictures, just how things have changed, what she missed them. Um, I can't remember now, but the way we ended, I can send it to you once we get the transcript, the way it ended with her testimony of, you know, of course now I can't remember, but I remember it was really powerful. I can't remember how she, she phrased it. Um, was kind of caught in the moment, but I can pull that once we get the transcript. They're appealing, of course, but she just did, did well and was able to, to explain it. Um, you know, basically, and I think the way she ended it was, you know, Chaz is a, a better human being than she was. And um, obviously, you know, him not being here is you know, going to never fill the void that, that, that was left. But um, she's very, very believable, very credible, very eloquent. And, and do you all have an allocation between survival and wrongful death in Illinois? Yes, but so here's what's weird about this case. We did not have a survival action because the coroner testified that they died on impact, which yeah. I don't know how, how accurate that was, but you know, I wasn't going to go against the county coroner and bring in an expert and say, no, they survived for a minute, two minutes. So, so the damages just flowed to mom. It was just for her loss, companionship, grief, sorrow, other things. And she yep. was not economically dependent on him. Correct. We put it in testimony that she probably would be in the future. I mean, what she aged. Um, but we are our economist is Stan Smith, and you know he gave a range of six hundred thousand to two point five million. You know, depending on um, obviously various future things that had to come true. The two point five is if he got a college degree because he had some community college. Um, but the jury gave us five hundred for for that. Got it. And for for the for the non-economic damages, who other than mom testified as to mom's loss, if anybody? Um, Just mom. So I'm, I'm a big believer, and I don't talk about lots of things about this. Let's see what your thoughts are. Sure. If the jury believes your client, you're going to win. If they don't believe your client, I think you could have 27 witnesses take the stand, and it's not going to matter. And I've kind of lived lived my life that way. I could be wrong and probably am, but I try to get in, get out, get to the point, And I don't like to belabor. And I've just, I don't know, it seems like the more trials I've done, if they like your client, you're going to win. If they don't like it, it doesn't matter. I believe if they don't like your client, forget it. For sure. It doesn't matter how many character witnesses you put on the stand. If they don't like your client, you're not going to win. So, you know, we didn't call the dad. We talked about they had a bad relationship. I mean, it's just the mom. Yeah. I mean, the, you got me thinking about if, if they do like your client, what, what still may be necessary in this case, I mean, the loss of a child, even for people who don't have children or haven't lost a child is still so understandable. I mean, there's just your empathy immediately kicks in for most people. I love that approach here. And we had, trust me, we had one on the jury and this again, he, he had no empathy, but you know, in Illinois, we have 12 jurors. It's gotta be unanimous. Uh, I would kill to have a state where it's like nine out of the 12. Cause we had, we had one that was apparently like back these 23 year old, you know, young, young white male 
um, no empathy. We apparently was back there, ready to cry about having to give any any money, but came around to four. Yeah, he's he's got no empathy for the mother whose child's been taken. He has total empathy for the idea of anybody <laughs> for money having to be paid for something like this. That's that's an interesting position. It's funny you say that because that from gathering talking to the jury, he didn't stick around. He he fled, but um, talking to him about him is that was his big concern is this is more money than I'm ever going to make. This is more money than most people make. And finally, some of the moms on the jury said, this isn't about you. It's not about you. It's about Laura, you know, get, get over you yourself. And, and then the, for the uh, split or division between actual damages and punitives, any punitive damages? No. Um, again, you know, in Illinois, we've got kind of bad punitive law and that always runs the risk of then you're going to blow your insurance coverage so no, no punitives, which to be honest, it would have been a good punitives case. But, you know, some of the evidence came out, this guy used to own five bars. Now he's down to one. You know, what's crazy, it came out on the stand and I didn't even realize this. He was deposed a few years ago. This case was delayed due to, to COVID. I'm, you know, in Montana, I was talking about this case. We were supposed to go to trial last year. But anyway, he comes out on the stand that this guy's now an Allstate insurance agent. Holy shit. Yeah, it, I, that was out of left field. And volunteers on the stand before the jury which I don't know, in hindsight, maybe it was good for us because the jury starts thinking, well, clearly he has insurance then, right? <laughs> and if I'm a juror, I'm thinking, man, he must have had a lot of insurance with Allstate. <laughs> I take it Allstate wasn't the carrier for, for a bar. So Nick, we talked, uh, we talked some about liability. We talked about damages. Um, we alluded to some of the defenses, but in terms of the defenses, cases, case in chief, what did they put up? So... It, it's crazy. They didn't put in any exhibits. I guess I take that back. They, they, they played some video. Well, okay. So here, here's something else that, that kind of threw me. I was not expecting this. You know, um, in opening, I, I'm big on, as you know, most attorneys are now. You got to talk about what, what's the defense going to say, right? Here's the defense, the defense case and why they're wrong. Um, they basically had two, two defenses. The first one I knew, the second one caught me by surprise. Um, this whole night was caught on surveillance. They an opening statement told the jury that the reason Sammy looked intoxicated on video is because there's video of him getting kneed in the, the nuts. Like literally that, that was their defense. And the second one was that, so we had a BAC, the corner had the BAC done. You know, Sammy was a 0.209. Chaz was a 0.301. The other defense was the BAC was not reliable. You can't, you, you can't depend on it. Um, we can talk about reasons why, but that was basically their, 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 two defenses. So by the time they actually put on their case, they called one expert, a pharmacist to talk about why the BAC blood draws were, were not reliable after in our case in chief crossing everyone. And even Liz Trendowski, it was great. Um, you know, getting hit in the nuts and how does that feel? And, and you know, it doesn't take a while for people to recover. And, um, you know, we objected to it, but judge overruled it. So unfortunately, and I'm just thinking as a dude, I'm thinking, man, do I have, you know, a deep impaired judgment after that happens to me? Do I have decreased inhibition? Do I have, you know, altered or impaired motor skills? Maybe. I mean, for a minute, am I in pain? Yes. Does it, does it result in me stumbling around and going off the road a couple hours later? No. I mean, the old need in the nuts defense. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. I mean, what in the hell? I guess it part of me was, I, I guess, it's just so crazy that I totally didn't even see it coming. But at the end of the day, the jury was like, yeah, we didn't buy into that. I mean, to your point, you know, getting eaten in the nuts isn't why you, you can't navigate a slight turn 
you know, at four in the morning and hit two trees and the car catches on fire. That's not from getting eaten in the nuts. That's from being intoxicated. You know, I'm thinking about this. I'm, I'm imagining kind of the defense team at some point before trial thinking, hey, guys, <clears throat> gals, Nick and, and these this plaintiff, these guys are never going to see the need in the nuts defense coming. It's like, okay, I guess we didn't. You know, got me. Got me in. Co- you know, cover me shot. Well, it's hilarious. So their star witness was the bar manager, Amanda. And, you know, you know, lesson learned. We, we, at that point in time, she was pissed off. She was there under subpoena, you know, mad. We had to get other witnesses in. She sees she's sitting around. We didn't want her to go for, you know, our order proofs. There's a lunch break. You know, we're supposed to go tell her she's got to come back. We're all scared because she's just in the hallway fuming, right? So we call her in. The judge tells her you got to come back at one. Okay. Um, I'm convinced. And, you know, and we basically call her at that point. We had, we had great testimony, great evidence. We just basically wanted her, the jury to see, you know, this is the person walking over Sammy DeMarco laying in a door threshold 11 minutes before he's about to drive home drunk. She was just did not come across nice, likable, right? Um, and this was not the woman who followed them. Correct. This is not the woman who followed them. This is the bar manager who's on surveillance, you know, letting Sammy take drinks from behind the bar and serving drinks, you know, after hours. So, I mean, we basically had no purpose to put her on other than we wanted the jury to see what she was like, right? Well, again, you know, famous Midwest saying pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. I mean, we probably should have let her go because she left there. And I'm, I'm convinced I didn't ask the other attorney. I'm convinced he prepared her over the lunch break because she just went on the stand. And I mean, that was, that was the only time at trial. I was like, man, that, that hurt. Well-prepared, just, you know, bashing on Chaz, bashing on everything. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the jury did say that, you know, she didn't like her. They, she, clearly cared about herself, but, you know, that's the one thing where, you know, have a reason for putting someone on the stand and if they have time to repair, maybe uh, don't recall them. Cause now Nick, if, if y'all don't call her, is it, is it your thought that they call her on direct during their case in chief? I don't think they would have. I really don't, but you know, yeah, in theory they could have, if we would have released her. Yeah. So <sighs> closing, what do you do? I mean, one thing that we talked about, out in Montana with, with Nick Rowley, the other Nick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and some of those folks, one of the things that we talked about was, was telling the jury the number um, versus the kind of, you know, uh, meekish, there's a Yiddish word for this kind of nevisha, like eh, half ass ask that shaky at best. What did you do in terms of demonstrating to the jurors uh, what the verdict ought to be? So, yeah, I'm big on, I think you have to set that expectation early and often. So I start in voir dire with my number, carry it through opening, and then I hammer it in closing. And I'm big on technology. Um, so we, I mean, I go through the key jury instructions. I actually filled out the verdict form for them, showed it to them, wrote, wrote the numbers in what I thought it was worth, but made it clear, you know, you, maybe you think it's worth more, maybe you think it's worth less. This is what, what only what I think, but you've heard the evidence, you know, you decide then kind of go through why, why I think the human losses, I hate, I hate the her term economic, not economic, and I can stole that, I think from Rex Paris, um, the human losses, you know, are, are way higher than the pocketbook losses um, and try to use the, the, that pocket as the anchor to drive up the, the human losses. 
Um, because if the human losses are less than the pocketbook losses, then that jury speaking the truth that, you know, human beings are worth less than, than work. And that just can't be true. Can it? I love that, that human beings can't be worth less than work. I've never heard it put like that. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. It's a good, a good book to read that, I, that I've kind of used in closing a lot. It's Killing Sacred Cows. It's, it's a money financial book, but the way it describes money and its role and its purpose, um, I've, I've stolen a lot from this book to uh, it's made it my closing argument because I think you know, the key is you got to describe what is money. Cause you know, early on, well, money's not going to bring them back. So why, why are we giving money? What's the point of money? And that book does a really good job of saying all, all money is, is a tangible representation of what we value as human beings, right? Nothing more, nothing less. hundred years ago it was beaver skin, right? hundred years from now it might be crypto. I don't know, but all this is, is a symbol today of what you know, we think is, is valuable in life. So what did you fill in on the verdict form? Well, it was a big number, <laughs> Kenny. I filled in for obviously the, the pocketbook losses I gave of 600 to 2.5. For the grief and sorrow, what I did was I took mom's life expectancy of 32 years. Yeah. And that should be a million. I said, if you think, you know, this isn't enough, it can be 64 million. I said, if you think it should be less, it should be um, 16 million. And then for the um, loss of life, I used Chaz's life expectancy, which is like 54 years, and said um, this should be 54 million. And then again, said if you think you know this isn't enough, it can be 108 million. You think it should be half this? Then let's do 25 million. You know, you you decide. But that's what I think. Yeah, and similar to what Nick did, Nick Rowley, the other Nick, um, did in that New Hampshire case. You know, a million dollars a year, looking at um at the loss of a parent. This is just the inverse loss of a child. Yep. And so it's funny. I did, I actually did watch that on CBN. I don't know, week before, um, in Illinois that we do have, um, it isn't per diem, but I'm always scared of running to follow. Right. The per- I don't, I didn't make it as clear as give us a million a year, but, um, you know, it's easy math. Yep. So when you're talking with the jurors post verdict, how did they arrive at their number? In Illinois, to be honest. So the second question from the jury was, can we have a calculator? And we focus grouped it twice. And basically every time we focus grouped it, all that happened was 12 jurors threw in their number, divided by 12 and average it out. And I'm assuming that's, that's what they did. But it's funny because, you know, when the jury was walking out, we obviously we figured, I should say figured, we knew we won, right? Can we have a calculator? So you don't need a calculator for zero, right? But when we were walking out, one of the jurors was like visibly upset. And I knew he was our best juror. Like he, he could not stand the defense. He just could not keep it off his face. Visibly upset. So I was like, crap. Real um, quick, what, what's, what's that guy's story? Tell me about him. His name's Kurt. I'll remember him forever. You know, and it, he, here's what's, what's crazy about Kurt. And during the voir dire, we had a miscommunication. I thought he was saying, you know, basically kind of running run the lines of um, money can't bring life back. Um, so what, what's good, what, what good is money. But when I was trying to like drill down on him, you know, here's a guy who's married, no kids. Okay. Um, he was saying all the right things, but just when you think from a demographic standpoint, he, you know, he wasn't a mom, no kids. He was married, right. Um, love NASCAR. Uh, I would say, I forget what his employment was, but very blue collar. Um, probably most people probably would say this is not a guy necessarily on my jury, but then he starts telling me that, you know, 
hundred million. So I'm asking in jury selection, you know, who thinks hundred million's not enough, enough money for loss of a child. And he's like, Oh no. He goes, he goes, that's not enough money. I wonder, I wonder if he and his wife always wanted kids and just couldn't have them. Uh, that's a good, good question. Um, you know, cause I used to think, you know, early on, you want to get jurors that can assimilate with, with your client, but it seems like more and more jurors that have common life experiences can kind of use that against them. Um, so that's a really good point because if he's there, you know, wanted kids, but couldn't have them, I could see why he would, would be kind of be the opposite. Right. Um, but yeah, so he came out and was visibly upset, like visibly upset and talking to jurors. He wanted to give us 125 million. We need 12 more Kurtz or 11 more Kurtz. And then you need the Kurtz on your uh, state courts of appeal and state Supreme courts. Agreed. I'm actually surprised defense kept him out because he said multiple times, like, no, that's not like, hundred million is not enough money. Not enough money. For the loss of the <clears throat> you know, they probably, my guess, uh, white guy. Yep. White guy, age 60. Eh, you know. Yeah. Probably voted for Trump. We'll keep him on. He's not going to give give anything. Fascinating. Who did who, if anyone, did you try the case with? Did you have co-counsel? My yeah, attorneys in my office, um, Ross Brennan and then Brad Melzer. How did y'all divvy up who was doing what and why? Uh, you know, good question. I did opening, I did closing, I I did jury selection for two panels. So now in Illinois, it's weird. We do four at a time. I don't know how you guys are in South Carolina, but we do four at a time. So that's panel one till you get 12 and two alternates. Ross did middle panel. Um, used the, the brutal honesty from Montana, which I thought worked great. Um, and then as far as how we divvied up work, we just kind of met. And I had Brad do a lot of the officers because he's got a prosecutor background. So I figured mm-hmm. he, he kind of knows that lingo a little bit better. Then I had Ross actually do the, the defendant, you know, the corp rep guy. He did a fantastic job with him, kind of made him look – it was hilarious because we're trying to get into evidence. And this is a whole other story. The attorney wouldn't wouldn't stipulate any, anything in evidence. So we got no visuals in opening. We had to – I basically had to act out the, the drunk parts as part of my opening. Um, and so we're trying to get into evidence, just pictures of Chaz and Sammy from the bar. You know, he's our first witness. So we show a picture, you know, Mr. Taft, do you know who that is? No, I don't. And we were kind of shocked. Like, how do you not know who, who, you know, we're here testifying. So then he's like, okay. So he shows him another picture, you know, Mr. Taft, do you know who that is? No, I don't know who that is. And I think it was just a very organic moment. He's like, did you not know you're coming to testify in a double death trial? And <laughs> not until a few weeks ago. <laughs> so he did that. So the def- I forgot the defense did call him too. They called that pharmacist and they called Taft back. Uh-huh. In their case in chief. And then he did, Ross did the shot girl, which she had never been deposed. We couldn't find her, got a subpoena on her, wasn't showing up. So the judge actually ordered the sheriff's deputy to go out and make contact with her. And she showed right. up. Did awesome. Did y'all have, was there someone amongst the three of y'all who was designated to be handling trial motions as they're coming up? Basically, the lawyer who's dealing with the law throughout the trial. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much, much me. Ross works out of our Texas office. Um, he's not licensed Illinois. He's obviously in Pro Hoc Vice. Um, as, as my case from day one, I was intimate with it. So I, Ross did one motion eliminate on a, a Facebook message, which is a whole nother story that we, we weren't getting in, but otherwise all the other motions eliminate 
you know, I did and I day before the Friday before trial, you know, I argued those all day in front of the judge. Got it. Have y'all done, have y'all had your post-trial motions yet? No. So I'm actually up tomorrow in Illinois. They just passed a pre-judgment interest statute a year ago. So I'm trying to get 140,000 pre-judgment interest tomorrow. They, they're requested till August 1st to file their a new trial motion. Got it. Got it. What did mom say? You know, you're talking about afterwards or. Uh-huh. So I, I actually, she, she tried to come to trial. I, I was, had her there to introduce her. Um, obviously she's not going to sit, sit there and hear this terrible stuff about, about what happened. She didn't, didn't want to come for the verdict. She didn't think she could handle it. Um, so the jury came out. I tried calling her, didn't answer, texted her. And she said, I'm shocked. You know, that's how you know, you know she's a great client. Never once asked me, what are we asking for? What's the case worth? What are, what are we going to get? I don't think she knew necessarily I was asking for as much money as I was asking. And never once tried to put me in a spot. Obviously, you, you run all the pretrial offers by her. Um, but she said she was shocked. And so I said, in a good way, question mark. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, money aside, you know, obviously, civil justice is all about money. But money aside, she needed this vindication that, he has his life matters and other people brought about what happened, right? It's not all Chaz's fault. And, you know, I, I think the money is important because it values Chaz and it sent the message and spoke the truth that you know, even though he's 25, no kids, no dependents, you know, a lot of lawyers won't even touch that type of case. I'm an intoxicated, you know, his life did matter. And we, you know, they understood that. I think she needed that more, you know, more than the money. And so mom wasn't there for closing either. She was not. Nope. Wow. She actually, she's moved and left the area because she said she's needed a clean break. She couldn't drive past that, you know, the scene of the crash every day anymore. Just always set her back. Tremendous job. Tremendous, tremendous job. Biggest lesson, biggest takeaway from this case for you. You know, I, I think the biggest lesson is you just get, this case had a lot of things that, you know, you got to take it with the punches. You got to be, be flexible. You've got to be athletic, you know, not physically, but you just, a lot of things happen that we weren't expecting and you just got to roll with them and, and make, make what you can work. Right. And the other lessons, like I said, pigs at fat hogs, get slaughtered. You know why you're putting a witness on the stand and, you know, an unhappy witness generally is not going to be good for you, especially if they have time to prep with the defense attorney over lunch. Well done. All right. Nicholas, we didn't, we skipped introducing you other than who you are and that you got a record setting verdict. Tell us a little bit about your, your practice in Illinois. And I didn't realize y'all had an office in Texas as well. That's about a year old, but um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this about 10 years. You know, I listened to a few of your other podcasts before you even asked me to be on. Um, you got a lot of great, great attorneys on here, which I'm privileged and honored that you asked me, but um. I'd say it's similar to kind of Henry Pecor's background in that I you know, went to law school hoping to be some big, big downtown, you know, corporate attorney. I couldn't find a job because, um, again, we graduated back when, what, 11, when there's still the kind of the, the holdover from the big recession, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, basically came back to where I was from. Um, my dad was a general practice lawyer. It was him and a part-time paralegal. You know, and then, you know, I remember my first PI cases were one case got dismissed in summary judgment because the statute was missed. 
because um, the client told us wrong. You know, another case, some chiropractic case. You know, if there's three terrible cases to start, and then you know, if you just start start getting one case, two case, you get good results, and it kind of snowballs. And now we pretty much do exclusively you know personal injury work, and I think we're up to like 12 or 13 people. Um, so it's been been good. It's been fun, and it worked out for the better because I would have been miserable working downtown for a big corporate firm. If they would have hired me, but they wouldn't. <laughs> ah, that's great. So you are, and you're licensed in Illinois. Illinois and Utah. And Utah. How'd that happen? You know, I've been going out there for about 20 years now. And at the time, so I took that bar as soon as I graduated. You know, I took Illinois first. Basically told myself if I wasn't happy to where I was at at 30, I was going to move out there you know, change things up and still, still here and things are going well. And I go to Utah quite a bit when I want and life is good. Good for you, man. Well, listen, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. You are my guest. So any final words? No, I mean, just like to say, you know, I met you in Montana, stand up guy, a lot of people in our profession that aren't and you're, you, you are and, Appreciate, you know, the opportunity to be on here, Kenny. Hey, man, appreciate you. And, uh, and I'll plug Nick one other thing. You know, the guy doesn't practice in South Carolina. But if, you know, if you've got a crazy ass boat case with a loose bolt and explosion defended with experts vigorously, but you can figure out the mechanical piece on how this happened and whose fault it was and do all that without filing a suit and getting the policy limits. I couldn't do that. But but Nick did. And uh, and busted a million dollar policy limit, or got a million dollar policy limit down here in South Carolina on a on a strange products case. Um, so you're not only kicking ass and getting record verdicts up in Illinois, all the way here to the East Coast. You know, you're hitting seven figure cases. So congratulations on the success of your practice, and thank you again so much for for taking time to be on the podcast today. This has been Kenny Berger, Best Practices. Our guest today, Nicholas Kernauer. See you later. <laughs>